Well, thank you, everyone. Uh, Dennis Mitchell, Senior Vice President and Senior Portfolio Manager and Lead Manager of the Focus Funds and the Global Real Estate Fund and the Global Infrastructure Fund. I'm going to walk you through an update of uh, our progress year to date, um, so a 2017 market update, and then we'll talk through the uh, various portfolios that we manage. So let's get into it. Um, taking you right to slide four, uh, what you've got here are the global manufacturing PMI indices. And what this basically tracks is it tracks economic output. And so the columns are countries or regions, the rows are various months. And you can see th uh, basically since midway through 2016, we've seen strengthening and recovery in the manufacturing PMIs across the globe. Uh, all of the blue boxes indicate expansion or readings above 50, and the bold numbers indicate increased expansion. So the numbers are getting larger. And so what you should take away here is that broad-based across the globe, expansion continues on an economic front. However, more recently, what we're seeing is these PMIs are starting to peak. So if you look, for instance, at the United States, PMIs peaked in February and have started to roll over. Uh, if you look at Germany, the PMI appears to have peaked, similarly for India and China, and certainly the G3, which is Japan, the US, and the Eurozone, those PMIs appear to have peaked. So while global growth is still positive and expanding, it looks like it has peaked and might start to moderate. That's something to pay attention to. On slide five, what we're looking here is U.S. earnings per share growth. And I, th I think it's widely known that we had an earnings recession uh, in U.S. companies last year. Uh, in Q1 of 2017, we're seeing extremely robust earnings per share growth. We were clocking in at about 15%. However, there's another caveat here. If you look at the comparable quarter last year, Q1 of 2016, you see that was a negative 4.5% reading. So you've got to take this 15% number with a bit of a grain of salt. Going forward, especially in uh, Q3 and Q4 of 2017, you can see the year-over-year -year comps are going to be more challenging. So we would expect earnings per share growth in the United States to begin to moderate in the second half of this year as well and get closer to the 6% long-term average. So this too is another thing to pay attention to. Finally, on slide six, when we start looking at the composition of earnings per share growth in the U.S. market, what we see is that companies that are more globally oriented in nature are actually outperforming companies in the U.S. that are more domestically focused. Now, normally you would look at the currency to see if this is having any impact, but uh, what you'll note is that the DXY is actually higher right now than it was in the same quarter last year. So it's not currency that's driving this. What we would think is driving this is, quite frankly, a recovery in other geographic locations outside the United States. Now remember, the S&P 500 right now generates about 48% of its sales from overseas, so there's a, a big chunk of the earnings growth can be attributed to a recovery outside of the United States. Now, moving on to slide seven, what this slide shows you is it shows you the performance of equities over the last six years. And what we've done is we've taken the yellow line is Europe, or Eurozone equities, the white line is global equities excluding U.S. equities, and then the orange line is U.S. equities. And it should be clear that pretty much since the U.S. election in November of last year, European equities have led global equities higher. Global equities excluding U.S. equities have done very well. And surprisingly, despite their performance, U.S. equities are actually lagging those other two groups. So we are seeing a bit of a rotation into other geographies that haven't kept pace with the U.S. for the last several years. One other troubling aspect, though, is captured on slide eight. What slide eight shows you is the, um, the white line is the S&P 500 value index. 
The orange line in the middle is the S&P 500, all constituents, and then the yellow line outperforming is the S&P 500 growth index. Now, the reason this is troubling is because this highlights some of the skepticism around the new U.S. president and his ability to implement his pro-growth agenda. Historically, since 1980, global GDP growth has averaged 3.5%, but we haven't hit that bogey. We haven't hit 3.5% real GDP growth globally since 2005. So it's, we're going on our 12th year of below-trend growth. And so in a low-growth environment, what becomes scarce is what, be, what is scarce becomes dear. And so growth is scarce in a low-growth environment. And so portfolio managers hunt for it. And where they can find it, they bid it up. And so that's evidenced in the S&P 500 trading at 18 times next year's earnings. Well, if we believe that the Republicans are going to implement a pro-growth agenda, and global growth is going to pick up back to the 3.5% global trend, then what becomes scarce is value, especially if the S&P is trading at 18 times. So you would think if there were confidence in the pro-growth agenda going forward and the ability to drive GDP growth higher, you would think that value would finally start to outperform growth. And right after the election, we did see that. So you can see in the chart here that that white line after November actually leads uh, the other two lines up until about mid-January. And this is the inauguration, and this is when uh, troubles really start to begin. Now, some of them are minor and, and quite petty, like the, the questions around the size of the inauguration crowd. Even the travel ban and the alternative facts uh, fiasco is, is really just minor. The two major things that really started to shake confidence in the ability of this administration to implement its pro-growth agenda were the Russian investigation and then the Obamacare failure to repeal and replace. Those two things really bought into question the ability of the Republicans to govern. The legitimacy of their ability to govern in the Russian investigation and their actual ability to govern themselves and the nation with the Obamacare repeal and replace failure. And you can see it's about this time where growth equities start to outperform again and, and replace value equities in terms of leadership. So this really does bring into question the market's confidence in the Republicans' ability to actually drive their pro-growth agenda. So that also bears watching. Now, slide nine makes the case, begins to make the case for European equities and why they've begun to perform. You can see that GDP growth, sorry, inf inflation on the left-hand side and GDP growth on the right-hand side, both have recovered. And more importantly, the forecasts going forward are for sustainably higher inflation and GDP growth. So those are pluses and kind of underscore why we've seen European equities in particular perform well. And on slide 10, you can see that there's a huge valuation gap, um, and that's been driven by the earnings recoveries in the various geographies. So you can see the, on the left-hand side, the lighter brown line is U.S. company earnings per share. And you can see that they are materially above the previous 2000, 2007, 2008 peak, uh, approximately 30% above that peak. And then the darker brown line is earnings per share growth of European companies. And you can see they're still 25% below their prior peak in 07 and 08. So this really drives a lot of the valuation differentials you're seeing between U.S. and European equities. And then on the right-hand side, a lot of this is owing to the difference in the health in the financial sectors in U.S. and Europe. So in the U.S., you can see that darker brown line that uh, goes above the axis. It's got sort of those two humps on the right-hand side. That is lending uh, in the U.S., both commercial and industrial loans and bank credit. And what you can see there is, is that U.S. Company, U.S. financials were repaired in 08, sorry, in 09 and 2010. 
All right, and they were then in a position to lend to both U.S. households and U.S. corporates. Whereas that lighter brown line is euro area loans, and you can see that European financials are still un is still in the repair phase. Now, much of the heavy lifting has been done, but you still have banks like Credit Suisse, like Standard and Charter, like uh, obviously Deutsche Bank that still require capital. So the repair work in European financials continues, and you can see that's been a lag in terms of lending in the Eurozone. And so a lot of the differential here in earnings per share growth is a function of the lack of repair of financials in the Eurozone versus the speedy repair of financials in the United States. Now, completing the argument for European equities on slide 11, what we can see here is that ETF flows, and really a lot of the money that's, flown in, that's flowed into uh, mutual funds and, and index products has, flown, has flowed into ETF products. But you can see here that US ETFs have, have garnered the lion's share of the flows in the last several years, whereas European ETFs have really been in net redemptions. Now, in more recent months, we've seen this trend reverse. Uh, as earnings per share and as lending in the Eurozone is picked up and the recovery is, is taken hold. And then you can see the relative performance of the equities. U.S. equities have outperformed European equities by 60% since 2007. Well, that is also clearly reversing. If you remember the chart that I showed you uh, on slide uh, 7, where European equities since the U.S. election have outperformed U.S. equities. So again, what I think we're seeing is the finally the repair of the financial system in the European markets, allowing European equities to perform and invest, allowing European households to consume, and we're starting to see flows move into European equities, and we're starting to see the performance and the valuation gap shrink. Um, lastly, we would say the political uh, risk premium that you see in European equities has clearly come in as we've had favorable electoral results in France and the Netherlands as they've been able to trigger Brexit without upsetting the markets. And conversely, I would argue that the political risk premium in the United States has actually expanded as the year has gone on as we've seen trouble from the Republicans and their ability to govern and questions around the Trump administration and its ties to Russia. So I would argue that going forward, uh, you're likely to see better returns out of European equities, and that leads nicely into our portfolio update where we've actually started to allocate more capital to European equities and will continue to do so. So if we take you to slide 13, um, this is data as of April 28th, and it's been a very volatile May, so don't hold me to these numbers, certainly. But uh, all of the focus funds and our global real estate and global infrastructure fund are either first or second quartile, and you can see the returns there to the end of April. So it's been a good year for us so far. Uh, slide 14, in terms of the global dividend fund and, and what we've been busy doing, uh, since the start of the year, we've reduced our Canadian and U.S. exposure in favor of European equities, and that trend will continue. Uh, we've added European names like Carrefour, which is the largest uh, grocery and food retailer in France with a footprint in, uh, in Europe. We've added Credit Agricole, which is uh, one of the larger banks in France as well. Uh, what we like about Credit Agricole is that it is a utility bank, meaning that it's got a very sound deposit-taking franchise, uh, a conservative lending franchise. It's got a bit of asset and wealth management, but it doesn't have a very large capital markets business. So this is more of a utility bank, your, your traditional model of borrowing at three, lending at six, and golfing at three in the afternoon. So we like, that, we like that bank, it's very well capitalized, and the French economy, particularly with the election of uh, Macron as the new president, looks poised to continue its growth. 
Uh, in terms of exiting, the one European position that we exited during the year was Safran. This is a very large jet engine manufacturer. They've got a joint venture with GE that gives them about an 85% market share in the narrow body jet engine market. And really the sale here was just on valuation. This name has had a very good run for us. But uh, when we look at the valuation and we look at sort of the term, sort of the uh, upheaval, they've made a large acquisition, a business called Zodiac. We're concerned that that acquisition may reduce their growth rate going forward. So when we look at that and we look at the returns that we've generated and the risk return going forward, we chose to exit this name. In terms of top contributors, and I should say I'm, I'm now on slide uh, 15. So when we look at top contributors, uh, Cineworld is up 33% year-to-date. Cineworld is the largest movie chain operator in the United Kingdom. They also have a material footprint in Central and Eastern Europe, Poland, Romania. What we like about this business is, is that it is levered to the, um, to the uh, film studio slate uh, for 2017 and into 2018. 2017 has been a very strong year. You've got a Cars movie coming out, a Pirates of the Caribbean movie, a Fast and Furious movie. You've got three Marvel movies, a Star Wars movie at the beginning of the year, sort of the, the Rogue One overlaps into 2017. And then you have a, a Star Wars canon movie at the end of the year in The Last Jedi. And then you've got two DC movies as well, Wonder Woman and Justice League. So the 2017 film slate is very strong, and the 2018 film slate is even stronger as you've got, a, again, a couple of um, more Marvel movies, more DC movies, more Star Wars movies. Um, Dufree has also been a very strong contributor to it for us. This name is up over 33% year-to-date. Uh, this is the largest duty-free retailer in the world. It had a 24% market share before it bought its largest competitor, World Duty Free. That acquisition has been fully integrated. Organic growth has started to pick up again. In the last quarter, it was over 7%. And uh, H&A Group out of China has taken a 17% stake in Dufree and is looking to help Dufree penetrate the Chinese duty-free market that is currently dominated by China duty-free and Sunrise. Uh, right now, foreign duty-free retailers cannot operate in China. So to the extent that H&A can help Dufree penetrate the Chinese market, it is a huge opportunity. And then finally, more recently, uh, what we've seen is Richmond Group, which is a uh, hardline luxury retailer, uh, has taken a 5% stake in Dufree. So despite the strong performance, Dufree still continues to offer a 6% free cash flow yield. And obviously, we've got large uh, strategic investors that continue to buy into the name. So we're happy to continue to own it. And then in terms of biggest detractors, um, Safran was, a, well, actually, in terms of biggest detractors, Discover Financial Services was our biggest detractor at down 8%. Uh, Discover continues to grow its loan book. However, we're at that inflection point for a financial services firm where um, investors are more concerned with their rising provisions for future credit losses on the back of this loan growth than they are enamored with the loan growth that Discover is generating. So Discover has been a strong performer with us and we exited the name at a material gain, but uh, we just feel like we're at that point in the cycle where investors are, are taking money off the table in anticipation of, as I said, growing provisions and credit losses in the future, as opposed to loan growth and EPS growth in the current period. In terms of our US uh, dividend class fund, uh, now we're on slide 16. I think the first thing we can say is that we've reduced our Canadian exposure. Uh, and then if we flip over to slide 17, uh, our new additions to the fund, Western Digital and Xylem are probably the, uh, the two biggest additions to the fund. 
Western Digital is a very large, a very large player in the memory space. Uh, they've acquired SanDisk a year ago and they fully integrated that name. And this name is very, very levered to data centers. Uh, that will be the prime driver of growth in sort of their memory business going forward. And data centers, of course, are levered to growth in terms of the internet of things, social media, machine learning, big data. So we're excited about Western Digital and the potential growth going forward. In terms of positions we've exited, it is dominated by financial services. So Bank of America, US Bank Corp, and of course Discover. We've exited financials in the U.S. in particular because they've run very hard, very fast since the election in the U.S. on the back of promised um, deregulation, promised tax cuts, uh, all of the fiscal stimulus that should drive GDP growth, that should see loan growth pick up, that should see inflation grow, that should drive net interest margin expansion for financials and loan growth and ultimately earnings per share growth. So, you know, Bank of America and U.S. Bank Corp have been strong performers for us, as has Discover Financial. But when we look at the risk-reward going forward, we're concerned that any delay or any shortfall in the promised fiscal stimulus would see these names correct materially. So we've exited. And in terms of top contributors, uh, Allergan is probably a name that stands out. This is a name that was hit very hard last year, earlier in the year, uh, when the Department of Treasury announced a crackdown on firms that it inverted and in particular, uh, serial inverters. And so this uh, singled out Allergan in particular. So the name corrected from about $240 a share down to about 180. We sold our position and then we started to acquire it back in the 180s. And the name is now peaked again at 243 and has pulled back in the 220s. Um, we, would, we would actually be buyers at these levels and we'd look to be adding a little bit more. But year to date, the name has been a strong performer. They sold their generics business, which is a slower growing part of the business. They sold that to Teva. They brought in over $30 billion of cash and $6 billion of Teva stock. They've used that to delever the balance sheet and to do a couple of strategic acquisitions in their specialty medicine business that is actually performing very strongly, as is their international division. And then they initiated a dividend and have committed to growing that dividend um, along the lines of free cash flow growth. So all in all, a very strong quarter and year to date for Allergan. And then Visa, nothing's changed about the Visa story. They've successfully integrated Visa Europe and they are looking to grow Visa Europe's margins to match those of uh, Visa, uh, you know, the US business. Uh, they're making inroads in India where 80% of transactions are still done with cash. You know, you contrast that with a country like Sweden where 80% of transactions are done without cash. You can see the potential in a, in a country that's growing rapidly around 6% uh, and has a very large population. And then Visa has been successful in adding new issuers in 2016 that are starting to drive results in 2017. So we're thinking specifically of um, USAA and JP Morgan and Costco. Uh, and then in terms of detractors, Discover Financial is, again is, is one of the biggest detractors here. I should note for both the global dividend class and the US dividend class, um, we had material detractors in the energy space. So in the start of the, at the start of the year, we, uh, we added between four and six energy names in both classes. And uh, as oil broke down and fell below 50, we, uh, we were motivated to exit these positions at losses. Now, I should, the reason they're not highlighted as top detractors is because our average holding or our average weighting in these energy names was anywhere from seven base, sorry, nine basis points to 71 basis points. So they weren't huge positions. Uh, it was more taking specific names to get energy exposure. The trade didn't work and we sold it at loss. 
but again, because of the small weight and the non-core allocation, we chose to highlight other detractors that were larger weights held for a longer period of time and more representative of the, the actual strategy and how we allocate capital. Um, moving to slide 18, the Global Real Estate Fund, the first thing we should say here is that we reduced our French and US exposure and we added to our Canadian and overall European exposure. Um, so moving to slide 19, we initiated new positions in IGD, which is an Italian retail name, Green Reit, which is an Irish retail and office name, CityCon, which is a Scandinavian, it's based in Sweden, but it's got a footprint in uh, Sweden and Finland and uh, in the Baltic regions, and this is a retail name, and then Enovalis, which is a Canadian listed name whose assets are in France. So, you know, really ramped up our European weighting along the, and uh, dovetails with what we did in the Global Dividend Fund and our thoughts on uh, European growth going forward and earnings per share growth out of European uh, corporates. We exited a lot of U.S. positions, so Boston Properties is an, uh, an office name, CubeSmart is a storage name, and then we had a couple of takeouts, My, well, so we had one takeout in, in 2017, that was Milestone. So this is a Canadian-based name with U.S. assets. It was taken out, uh, I believe, by, um, oh, I can't remember. But anyways, it was taken out by another Canadian-listed name, Tricon, thank you very much. And uh, we realized a material gain there. We had temporarily moved the assets into pure multifamily, which again is another Canadian-listed name with U.S. assets. But we recognized that pure multifamily was probably going to have to do an equity raise, so we actually exited pure multifamily and uh, purchased Morgard North American Residential, which is, again, Canadian-listed name with U.S. assets. In terms of top contributors, Global Logistics is a Singapore-based uh, owner and operator of logistics assets, so warehouse. This name is up over 43% because it is uh, subject to a takeout. So there are four groups that are looking to, that are bidding to take out this name. Uh, it is uh, majority owned by GIC and Tomasic, which are again uh, Singaporean sovereign wealth funds. So, you know, we, we started acquiring this name at, a, at about a, a dollar eighty Singapore dollars, uh, added some more at around two, two ten, and the name is now traded up to two ninety three. We're pretty confident that uh, it'll finally go for over three Singapore dollars because our NAV is about three Singapore dollars. Um, Around Town is also another name that we've done well in. This is a uh, German name, uh, residential. Uh, what we like about this name is that supply demand for residential in Germany, in particular Berlin, is very, supply is very constrained, demand is very robust, and so we've seen uh, rents go up, we've seen net asset values climb, uh, and more recently the Mietspiegel, which is uh, a German word that uh, essentially means the allowable rent increase that gets generated every year. This surprise to the upside, it was over 9% uh, compared to the market expecting 5%. To put that in contrast, in Ontario, it's usually around 1.5%, 2%. So this is a huge increase in the amount of rent uh, increase that uh, German residential operators can, gen can push through. And around town with their footprint in Berlin residential is in particular positioned to do very well. Top detractors, um, American Campus Community is the largest owner and operator of student housing in the United States. Uh, this name is, is funny, it's got two leasing seasons in particular, sort of April and then in September, and it's tied to the school year. So it's not as if, uh, it's not as if American Campus Community can lease up its properties all year round. It's really two leasing seasons, April and September. 
So the April leasing season was behind trend and behind where they were last year, and so the name has been weak. And then, uh, so we're really, we're really looking to September later this year for them to catch up and for the leasing to pick up. So we're comfortable with this name. We'll probably add a little bit more on weakness and uh, in anticipation of a robust September leasing season, getting this name to work again. And then GGP is uh, an owner and operator of Class A malls in the United States. This name has really suffered from sentiment around retail names in the US. The concern is that department stores are closing shop and that vacancies will rise. But if you look at general growth, and we've met with management a couple of times, they would love to get these department store boxes back. First off, I should say operationally, GGP is doing very well. Their same property NOI growth is positive. Their leasing spreads are still positive. They're growing their net asset value. They're growing their dividend. They're growing their free cash flow. So it's really sentiment. Uh, and GGP has outlined to us what they like to do with these department stores when they get them back. Some of them get uh, split up or redemised, if you will, and leased out to junior anchor tenants. So smaller anchors, smaller than department stores, but still able to take up a full floor of space. But more excitingly, GGP is turning some of these malls into lifestyle centers. So you'll take a three-story department store that's closing and you'll lease out the bottom floor to a gym and you'll lease out the top floor to a restaurant and then the main floor might become a movie theater. And so instead of having one large tenant that takes up a lot of space unproductively, you've got three tenants that have got much, more, much higher utilization per square foot, rent per square foot, sales per square foot, and you turn the center into a lifestyle center. Meaning instead of going there and shopping for one or two hours and then leaving, uh, a couple might go there and work out together, have lunch together, do some shopping, go to a restaurant for dinner, see a movie, and then leave. And so instead of spending one or two hours there shopping, you're spending four or five hours there shopping and eating and being entertained. And so it becomes a lifestyle center that captures more of your share of wallet from an entertainment and more of your time from a, and more of your leisure time. So we're excited about what GGP will be able to do going forward, and we continue to hold the name. And then finally, if we're uh, moving to slide 20, um, the Global Infrastructure Fund, again, first thing I would say here with this fund is that we've reduced our Australian and US exposure, and we've added to our, our, sorry, our European weightings. And then moving to slide 21, uh, new positions sort of on the European side of things, Group Euro Tunnel. This is uh, the company that owns and operates the channel, if you will, the underground tunnel that moves between the UK and France. Uh, approximately 40% of, uh, of UK GDP travels, sorry, 40% of the trade between the UK and the Eurozone travels through this tunnel. Um, what we like about this name in particular is that it was hit when, uh, when Brexit happened and there was anticipation that uh, truck volumes and traffic and auto volumes and, and passenger volumes through the channel would be deleteriously impacted. And while there was a small dip in, in volumes and traffic through the tunnel, it quickly recovered. And so we were able to get this name at a slight discount and it's been a strong performer for us. And then Drillish, Drillish is a uh, German telecom operator. Uh, it's got a very, very favorable arrangement with Deutsche Telekom and Telefonica where they operate as a, a mobile virtual network operator. So a much less capital intensive business model. 
We recognized a, a, a year and a bit ago that at some point, United Internet, which owns, a, I believe, a 17% stake in Drillish, we recognized that United Internet was eventually going to have to make a bid for Drillish. So we've held this name despite the fact that it looked very expensive on short-term numbers, and we've finally been rewarded with um, United Internet making a bid of 50 euros initially for Drillish, and the stock is now trading at 57 euros, so that's, you know, confirmation that uh, shareholders are anticipating a higher sweetened bid for Drillish. We've started to trim this name because we don't anticipate this being a scenario like Global Logistics where the name is another 30 or 40% upside from the announcement of a bid. Um, Drillish is a pretty easy business to value, so we would anticipate maybe a max bid of maybe 60 euros, maybe 65, but at 57 euros, we've certainly done very well. We've captured the lion's share of the upside, and we're happy to trim some of this and redeploy it elsewhere. In terms of exiting, uh, we've exited Kiera, which is a name that I quite like. We exited Kinder Morgan and Waste Management. So Kiera and Kinder Morgan are midstream companies in, the US, in Canada and the U.S. respectively. And Waste Management, is, as the name would imply, a solid waste management company. Uh, we exited all of these names on valuation and, and really on finding better places to allocate capital. In terms of top contributors, Vinci is a uh, French construction and concession operator with a recovery in France and the recovery broadly in the Eurozone. This name has started to trade up. It was trading at a discount to the value of the concessions and almost no value was being given to the construction business. And with the recovery in France that's anticipated and the recovery we're seeing in the Eurozone, this name has traded up materially. Um, Transurban is an owner and operator of toll roads, primarily in Australia, but with a footprint in the United States. This name is picked up as it's got some growth, growth um, options, both in Australia and the United States, that they should be able to profitably capitalize on going forward. As well, Australian bond yields have come down, and this name tends to trade inverse with Aussie bond yields. So as they've come down, Transurban has gone up. Uh, in terms of detractors, uh, Kiera was off about 5%. This is largely tied to uh, oil prices, uh, although they did disappoint in, with Q1 reporting, largely around NGL volumes in the marketing business, and so we chose to exit this business. So that's the portfolio update. Slide 22, again, uh, gives you an overview of the six different funds that the focus team manages. I would say we didn't touch on the balance funds, but the equities there reflect the equities of their respective dividend funds. Um, so whatever we've done on the equities in the dividend funds, we've also done in the balance funds. Again, the fixed income is an allocation to our diversified bond fund run by Scott Colburn, our head of fixed income, and his team. Uh, as we get the AUM up, we'll transition to buying um, fixed income securities directly in the balance funds. And I should say we own a class that we don't pay fees on, so you're not paying fees on fees. Uh, the allocation to fixed income in the balance funds is at its minimum 25% right now, which means we're at our max 75% in terms of equity and cash. And in terms of cash, broadly across the board, we're at between 6% and 10% in cash, 6% for the dividend funds and the balance funds, and closer to 10% in the real estate and infrastructure portfolios. And then slide 23 just gives you the fund codes because I imagine you're all hotly anticipating buying all of these portfolios based on the returns in the quartiles year to date. As always, if there are any questions, uh, you know, please reach out to your Sprott wholesaler to get any information uh, or questions answered on any of the funds. And again, I thank you for taking some time to listen to this uh, webcast. And as always, stay focused.